This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today, I am honored to visit with author James Kennedy George, Jr. He's written a book titled Reunion. This book, Reunion, is a debut offering from our author. Jim, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Jay, from Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show. I'm interested in your book. This is a 301-page endeavor. Jim, I'm curious, as a first-time author, how long did it take you to put this book together? Well, first, <laughs> I knocked it out, to use that term, in 10 years. Um, and, and within that 10 years, there were 19 revisions. Uh, the mechanics of it were were interesting and drawn out, and, and I think resulted in something I'm I'm proud of. I'm proud to release it. Uh, the mechanics involved uh, starting it in the third person past tense, and then about halfway through, uh, and I started it all in longhand. I do write creatively all, all only in longhand, and then, of course, type it and, and enjoy revising like Frank McPhee does. Um, I also, um, I also, um, then uh, it started with 192,000 words, quite a monstrosity, I would imagine, and, and I would say. I modified it uh, as a result of an online course I took with Stanford University over three months, and given some feedback from my, my classmates, um, I modified it to first-person past tense from the third-person past tense. And then I, I happen to read, I read a lot, I read 40 books a year, and upon reading Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt, I was so struck with the reality and like, hey, I'm really there with you uh, feeling of writing a book in the first person in present tense that I modified all the I modified all the verbs and went from first person past to first person present. And it ended up 19 revisions later, at, at, as you said, about 300 pages, which, which, which for me is a, is a sweet spot for a book, and at about 85,000 words, uh, more or less. Incredible. Tell us about your history. You were in corporate America, but prior to that, you grew up in the tri-state area, primarily West Virginia. Yeah, kind of the tri-state area. My dad was my dad was in sales, and we moved around uh, between West Virginia. In fact, I don't want this to sound too maudlin, but we we lived in all the places that people uh, talk about uh, as as downtrodden. <laughs> we lived in eastern Kentucky, southwestern Virginia, and then finally, my parents moved to. Uh, extreme southern West Virginia, where I, I went to high school, and, and, and my parents ended up living there until until they passed away. So, you know, the book the book reflects the culture of, um, of Appalachia and, uh, and its unique characteristics. And your book covers primarily as a story the uh, incidents around a 45th, uh, 45th year reunion of the 1960 class of Princeton, West Virginia High. Jim, because this book takes place in the setting where you grew up as a child and as a young adult, does it include any of your personal story? Well, it's interesting. You know, how does one lay out a story? The, the, the primary theme of this book is one of relationships, and the, the primary relationship in the book is is one of um, the narrator's father and himself. And the father was a was a lifelong, almost lifelong alcoholic. Finally. Uh, Finally went to a rehab center and got and got sober for the last twenty years of his life, but never really loosened up, never really re reconnected with his family. Was a very lonely person, and uh, so the book deals with that relationship, the relationship that really wasn't the dad that was never there, that never taught the son how to fish or tie his shoes or tie a tie or shoot a twenty-two gun, and uh, never came to a little league baseball game and. And, you know, the son went through life that way, basically fending for himself. And um, along the way, built up a lot of resentment. And, you know, later, when I was, when I was in my 50s, I learned there's a term for that, adult children of, uh, of alcoholics. Um, but I sort of found that out the hard way and with a self-discovery process. So the book deals with that primarily. But, you know, you just can't bite it. I can't write a book only about that. I mean, I'm, it, would, it would be too, too painful and, and too dry. So... You know, you wrap that with other relationships, and in my case, I chose the uh, unique, and I think they were, 
a unique relationships with my high school peers. Um, the girlfriend character, the, the buddies, the guy with the hot car, the, you know, the guys in the football team, uh, uh, and so forth, the, the guys at the radio station. And the book, the book deals with all of those relationships uh, sandwiched, uh, sandwiched into a high school class with the overriding theme of the parental relationship. And I decided I would start it uh, close to the end. The book begins at a, at a 45th high school reunion. And like many high school reunions, the, the Friday night reunion is the mixer. You know, you have a drink in your hand. You, you look at all these strange-looking people that look old. Of course, everybody, not including yourself. <laughs> but then, um, so it starts there on a Friday night. The characters are introduced sort of later in life. And then it reverts back chronologically, flashes back to the years just prior to high school. The family dynamics, the family characters are developed. And then the high school characters, all in the sense of, you know, high school people and all the all the good things and weird things we we do and we did, and it comes up through high school and then it fairly quickly um, takes the narrator on through the rest of his life in about 20% of the book and then ends up again back at that same reunion, but now on on Saturday night, and on that Saturday night uh, the reunion has. The, you know, the typical things. It has a memorial service for those that are, are gone. It has a, a meal. It has a talk or two by the class uh, Illuminati, the, uh, the glitterati of the class. And, and then, there was a, then there was a band playing. And our class always was really united through the old rock and roll, the top 40 stuff of the 50s and 60s, and then the, the rhythm and blues of the South. And so the book, uh, the book involves all of that and everything in between. And a couple of unique things I think I think uh, are notable here, uh, over and above the normal class shenanigans. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of car race teams, and yeah, there's football games, and there's a radio station involved because the narrator has a job at the radio station, and there's a girlfriend, and there's this and there's that. But also, there's uh, the narrator uniquely gets involved with a high school rock and roll band. It has a lot of interesting experiences. Uh, they go on the road. They they play at some black clubs, and they get they, they they experience for the first time playing in honky tonks, both white and and some black soul clubs. And they realize what it's like to be to be a minority, to have no power at all, to nobody really cares. And this this thing happens during the period that this particular high school desegregates. And so you've got a black character that comes into the group of friends only because of desegregation, and only because he gets into the band. And he turns out to be one of the really key characters in the book. And, and this character, whose name is R.C. Peterson, this character, along with the narrator's best friend, a guy named Wendy Johnson, they basically carry through the whole book. And they, they, they go all the way through, and they end up at the very end of the book. But unique things involve them. And in Wendy's case, he, he loses his health. And there's the trauma of, of his demise uh, through poor health. And in an Arcee's case, he always wants to be a rock and roll star. But while not achieving that, he achieves something even more important. And so, you know, these things, these things come out, they're dealt with, there's fun, there's trauma, there's fright with, with car races and arrests. But then over the, oh, the overriding uh, theme here is Jimmy, the narrator, does he ever come to grips with his resentment towards his dad because in one really, I think, key scene in the book, Jimmy and his dad say goodbye. They don't know they're really saying goodbye, but shortly after, the dad dies from a heart attack. Mm. But the, the dad never could really resolve his closeness to Jimmy, and Jimmy never could resolve that resentment, which at this point could, could not be dealt with. The dad is gone. and So the book deals with Jimmy's attempts to resolve that resentment after dad is gone, and, or in, in this case, daddy is gone because it's the self. And, you know, does he or doesn't he? How does he handle it? And uh, so that's the theme of the book. Any controversial aspects of the book that you think might be surprising to readers? Well, I think there were a couple. Uh, one is, and I'm saying, I, I think it's, I, I hope it's treated well, but Jimmy struggles with spirituality, struggles with religion, especially organized religion. And in that part of the country, that's really an important part of the culture. And uh, so there's that struggle. 
And ironically, over the book, Jimmy realizes that mainstream churches proved to be supportive to him in many unanticipated ways after he's more or less ruled them out of his life. Uh, the narrator becomes aware of the system of, of their institutional segregation in the South. And, and I think over, uh, you know, he, he, was not, he was not a freedom rider. The narrator wasn't a guy going out leading the battle. So he sort of goes with the flow, but clearly recognizes the caustic effects of, of desegregation. And then, of course, he has to deal with his long-held belief that his dad failed him. Does he, does he, how does he deal with that resentment? Is he fair about it? Uh, and, uh, you know, fundamentally, that, that's, those are, I think, some controversial aspects. And your book should have a broad appeal, but who's your target audience, and why do you think they'd be interested in this? Well, it's um, it's it's gonna it's gonna appeal to anybody certainly who grew up in the fifties and sixties, you know, who loved the rock and roll of, of that era. Anybody that had a that had an issue with one or both of their parents, and I've had feedback from many people, many many, mostly men, but often women as well. And then people are just like a good story, a good story told about about high school relationships and about relationships in general, and people that like to understand the cathartic nature of exploring the, the, the relief from this resentment. Is there any moral or underlying theme that you want that you want readers to take away from reading your book? It's a it's a book about a time and a place. Uh, it's a book about people. Uh, and I and I and while the book has been reviewed extensively, there are probably are nearly 30 reviews on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble, and both uh, Kirkus and Blue Ink have reviewed the book professionally. One review really I felt captured it nicely for me, <clears throat> and I guess it explains why somebody would find this book interesting. This guy, by the way, is in Minneapolis. I have no idea who it is, <clears throat> and he is, uh, let me just quote the very final the very final. Uh, sentence of his review. It says, reunion is an unexpected surprise to read in a book, only to discover that to one degree or another, it's a story about you. And you know what? I think that's a nice compliment. Absolutely. Jim, were there any challenging aspects of looking back to the 60s and remembering the times and the places and the events? Well, it's it's embedded in my mind. A, a, a number of people have said, uh, hey, uh, how could how could you recreate the scenes? How could you remember or, or make up what the inside of a club looked like? What 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 the floor looked like? You know what what was the lighting like? What was the beer sign that went back to the men's room in a in a you know in a honky tonk? Uh, uh, how can you remember the guy's gimme cap? You know the the guy in the blue jeans and the JD's uh, JD's JD's club out on the highway and uh, how can, how can you remember that the, the, how can you create it so vividly and and you know the answer to that is I don't know I don't know I guess it left an imprint on me and uh, and I enjoyed writing it and and I might say that when I started this book it's interesting when you start a book you know you don't really know where it's going to go you might have a, an outline or an idea and some of the characters I thought would be the primary characters who would carry through the whole book and as I remember as I mentioned uh, the character Wendy Johnson and the character R.C. Peterson, I sort of knew both of them would be interesting, and they, they, both, they both fulfilled that idea. They both went all the way through and held their ground. But a couple of the characters sort of faded. They just didn't prove interesting enough to, to remain main characters. And then, on the other hand, a few that started out not at all interesting to me or background people for sure, they ended up being really major people in the thing. And uh, and, and, and got and they grew in my in, they grew in my story and in my storyline. So, you know, you never know. You start it, <laughs> you work hard, you keep at it, and it happens. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you for giving us insight into the process of putting together a remarkable novel. The title again is Reunion. The author James Kennedy George Jr. Thank you, Jim, for joining us today. Jay, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. And refresh our memory. Where can we get copies of this book? Oh, thank you. Well, it's available at any, uh, uh, first of all, the obvious place uh, uh, through, through the publisher, uh, Author House, through their, uh, their site. Also through the normal uh, suspects, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. 
It's also available at any independent at any bookstore, any bookstore in the world that can order this for you online. Um, it's in it's in physical shelf stock uh, at three bookstores at Hearthside uh, Books in Bluefield, West Virginia, at the large retail center on the West Virginia Turnpike, Tamarack near Beckley, and here in Austin at Book People, a major uh, independent bookstore in, in in Austin, Texas. It's available in all forms, uh, soft cover, hardcover, and also all forms of ebook, Nook, Kindle. Uh, Google download and so forth. And one last little teeny item that you might enjoy on the cover. There's a piece of original art done by a fairly uh, done by a distinguished uh, author, uh, Austin author, uh, Shani Lott, and it's a picture of a of a hillside hillside mountain in West Virginia. One of the signs saying uh, West Virginia almost heaven, which is a scene in one, in one of the books. It's it, seen in the book. And so, you know, it's it's easy to find, and and uh, I hope I hope people will try it, and I'm sure they'll enjoy it. Well, in reading your bio, I understand that writing and being an author is your new passion. Anything in the works? Yes, uh, one of the one of the recommendations, uh, just as a prelude to your question, one of the recommendations from from my publisher as part of their marketing package, which I which I purchased. Uh, they recommend, uh, you know, blogging and active social Internet participation. And, uh, you know, while I've, I'm an emailer and I've done this and that, I really wasn't a blogger and was, was not aware of some of the, some of the social media uh, options. But I, I'm an active blogger. I probably have 20, 25 so far and, and try to get something out every two weeks or so. Um, most of them are non, non-controversial, but I've gotten a few out with a lot of feedback. I find that that works. Uh, every time a major blog goes out, I'll see a little tick up in uh, in sales of the book, uh, as I do when a book club selects it for their readings. Uh, by, by the way, I've done five book clubs here in this area, and that's a lot of fun to get feedback and to answer questions. And my next book, my second book, I've, I've now completed the first two chapters, and hopefully it's something dealing uh, along the lines of the high-tech industry, an uh, in, in industry in which I've had a lot of experience, both in this country and internationally. Um, and so I'm hoping to sort of create a character who has a lot of interesting, interesting high-tech experiences, but then capture some, some, some also some personal things involving the uh, stroke my, my wife has been through, although she will not be the character. Uh, in fact, the narrator of the book, I think, will end up having health problems, and we'll deal with that. So, yeah, number two is, number two is on its way, uh, along with active blogging, and I thoroughly enjoy, along with reading my 40 books a year, I enjoy writing as well. Excellent. And your blog site, where is it located? Glad to, glad to give you that information, Jay. It's, uh, it's Reunion, the name of the book, R-E-U-N, R-E-U-N-I-O-N dot Authors Express, A-U-T-H-O-R-S-X-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And I think, you'll, I think the folks will really enjoy it. We'll look forward to talking with you in the future about your next project. Jay, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Honored to visit with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. We have a great book and an interesting author on today's show. The author is Ilona Clark. 
her book, The Bare Bottom International Party Chef, The Bare Essentials You Need to Have an Awesome Party. Welcome, Ilona. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward for this moment so I can uh, tell somebody how I feel about this book. Fire away, if you'd like to know. It's a charming book. You have a fascinating history. You speak six languages. You're an author. You also have been a world-class athlete and chef, as well as surviving some difficulty in your past. A remarkable past. Tell us about that and how you came to write this book. Well, first of all, how did I happen to write this book? Because uh, I'm writing other books as well, um, working on other books. But this was uh, on my mind for a very, very long time because... um, uh, I do high-end parties, and um, cooking is come, came to me very natural after I was learning from my mother at age nine, which was a necessity for survival. But I came to write the book because every time I turn around and with my accent, which uh, never leaves me, uh, everybody asks, well, how you how you do this? Uh, can you give me the recipe? And I was frankly so sick and tired of it to just uh, get a piece of paper or a napkin and write it down and um, ladies took, ho- took it home with them. Um, and they called me next day, oh, how was that? What you do there? So I figured out uh, not too long time, I said, hey, maybe I can make some money and put this together. And when anybody asks about more recipes, I just push it front of their nose and um, say, here, buy my book. I get two things that, you know, everything is covered, I figure. Um, well, one thing I liked about your book in, in reading it and looking through it, not only have you gotten some, some great colored photos of the finished product, but your recipes are relatively simple. They're not complicated. There's five, six, maybe ten ingredients, and it's straightforward. Is that how you would describe your cooking style? Yes. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, anybody can learn how to cook. All, all you need is a little bit of uh, desire, uh, a little bit of um, motivation, and, of course, if you have somebody you want to please, then you're definitely going to learn fast. But, um, again, you have to Im- imagine and visualize uh, what you want to cook. And I'm sure, Steve, you know that people are uh, uh, like to eat with their uh, eyes, like um, visualizing, hmm, that looks good. Maybe I can do that. But how many times you come across and there's a gorgeous recipe, a fabulous uh, Kodak moment in a book and or, or the magazine, and you're wondering, oh, can I do that? Yeah, maybe. But then you have to run around 10 different stores and you have no clue by the time you buy the ingredients, what on earth are you going to do with that? How is it going to come out? So number one, you have to visualize what you're going to make. And if you not necessarily have a picture with it, but it helps. But if you make the food and you can imagine the flavors blending together, and that's number one, you really have to concentrate on and um, you can imagine how this is going to look like not, not, never mind about talking about burning the dish or something but to blend it in and uh, put it together that's very important and uh, lots of times uh, people don't like to cook because it looks too complicated and um, they just cannot imagine so I should decided let's just get down to the very minimum basics so everybody can understand what you're doing and um, not writing an encyclopedia and have a compass in your kitchen to do it. That's so, a, That was a wonderful, wonderful approach. I love simplicity when it comes to cooking, and the end product is really what you're trying to achieve. I've got family members who spend hours and hours and hours looking at complicated recipes and, and not knowing how they're going to turn out. These, exactly. These are simple, and they should be absolutely delicious once they're completed. Yes, and you can you can visualize it now. Um, pictures always helps, you know. But uh, sometimes, who are just um, I ran into a couple of people who 
I sold the book already, and um, a young uh, housewife who just got married recently was looking at the book. Hmm, I think I can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can do that. You know, that's all you all you need to make up your mind. Can I do that? It's not so complicated. Uh, you need good utensils. Um, sometimes, you know, that's a must add. Something not sticking down, and you get frustrated uh, stirring stuff. Um, and today it's available fantastic uh, utensils, you know, like pots and pans and um, casserole dishes and anything. Uh, where when I was young, we had only one pot and one um, deep pot. Mm. <laughs> Forget about satay pan, we did not even have satay pan. And um, everything is so easy in, in this um, time of age, you know, you get everything going for you where when I was nine years old I had to make the fire first of wood on a stove which was a brick stove and then I had to harvest the tomatoes and make the tomato sauce and then I had to make the roux and make the soup so I can have a good tomato soup when my mother comes home from the hard work and you know it's determination what you can do and I think um, if you put your mind to it you can do anything you want. Absolutely. Now, Hungarian recipes are noted for their unique spices. What spices would you recommend as the foundation of any good cooking? Well, the Hungarian cooking goes back a long way. And, you know, Hungary was under the Turkish uh, rule for 150 years. And uh, they did not leave much for us to learning from them. Rather, they took something from us. But... Um, you know the famous goulash that everybody talks about? Yes. Now, that is so simple. You know, I'm so, uh, it just needs a very special pepper, which is a wax uh, pepper sold in high-end market stores, fresh onions, garlic, and uh, chicken or beef broth, and a good, uh, good aged beef, like Angus beef I use most of the time. And... Um, you know, and the technique how you put it together. And the little patience when it cooks the stuff, you know, in a stove, on a, on a, in a pot, a good pot. And um, you got the goulash ready. And uh, mm. if you see the goulash recipes in different magazines, uh, they just guess it how it's made. But the spices, the uh, essential element of this goulash or Hungarian, some of the dishes, we have red paprika. Yes. Am I saying that paprika? Yes. Okay, it's, it's, it comes in a powder form, and for a long time you couldn't get it in uh, this kind of a continent. But now you can get it in, uh, in made in U.S., in, up in, I think, Ohio. And that gives the color of the dish and the flavor, and it gives a thickening agent to the sauce as well. Ah. Um, it, it is uh, very simple, but it's a delicious spice. Of course, we use the uh, garlic, the onions, the uh, thyme, rosemary, just like any other countries, except how we blend it in. Maybe that's a bit different. And do you use dried herbs and spices in your recipes? Well, when I was a kid, we always had uh, just fresh, you know, and I got used to using fresh. And uh, But if you don't have the fresh availability, you can get uh, the nice, dried one, you know, a good one. Good quality. And Yeah, good quality, not like a, which is just slapped together of some some kind of weed, you know. Mis- yeah, mi- <laughs> so, mystery herb. <laughs> mystery herb, yeah. Believe me, you find a lot of those in the market. <laughs> I have. I certainly have. One question. You mentioned Italian yes. parsley. What is the difference between Italian parsley and the standard parsley you find in the supermarket? Well, you can, you can find both of them. Italian parsley, when I came to America 33 years ago, mind you, I'm giving away my age person in here. You're 34. Have to be careful. Yes. <laughs> but the Italian parsley is a flat leaf, and it's um, wider leaves than the crinkly one, and it's more stronger and more potent. And it uh, gives a, a very... Uh, Unusual flavor to the soups, very important, and stews, and 
and um, salad you can use it. Not the other salad would go well because it's pretty strong, you know. And we use of the parsley, the root as well, which is a, we call it here white carrot, which is not white carrot, it's parsley root. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and it's very it's almost impossible to make a good meat soup or turkey soup without that parsley uh, um, root. Just like salary roots, you can buy, you know. Yes. And those are those are similar, and the root vegetables are full of vitamin C and A and everything else. It's good for you. Um, for example, somebody has a, a, um, a teeth like a gum problem. If you eat lots of uh, parsley roots, I guarantee it helps the healing of the gums. Interesting. So this has uh, some natural ingredients that that help your health. Yes, it does. During the war, when uh, uh, lots of Hungarian soldiers were shipped to the Gulag and they migrated back to Hungary, and they had not much to eat, but some of the uh, dumpsters, they find some parsley root, which was cooked in soups, and um, they ate some and their teeth was uh, didn't fall out. So there you go. Fascinating. I, I had not been aware of that. I'll, I guess, go to the store and get some of that just in case. But uh, try it to save in some soup first, so it will um, it will be a nice tasty. And uh, you, you, because alone if you cook it, it's good if you cook it alone with. Um, you cook the celery root, the parsley root, and the horseradish. You cook it and you mix it, blend it in, and you can make fabulous uh, mashed potatoes with, you know, like uh, radish mashed potatoes, like uh, horseradish mashed potatoes. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I certainly am That is not in my cookbook. That's not in the next one. (laughs) Oh, I'll have to wait for the next cookbook to figure out how to do that one. Now, you can. I, I just read the book. You will, you will, you will love it. You know. How is it possible to to make gourmet meals in such a short time? Um, planning. You have to plan ahead, and you have to know what you're going to buy. So you buy the stuff; it's at home already, and um, you keep on sauteing and cooking. And uh, it, it doesn't take more than half an hour, thirty minutes. If it's planned well, you know? Yes. And finding the ingredients, are there any complicated ingredients, or is this simplified so that we can cook it very uh, quickly? It is simplified in my book because I made this book for um, the international uh, recipes, which is sometimes a different matrix system as well. I made it like um, for the taste of the availability of uh, ingredients in America or... um, this side of the continent, uh, which you can um, purchase in here. You don't have to go to the end of the world to get it. So everything in my book is uh, purchasable here, and um, it it translated to the easy method to achieve the result of this cooking recipes. I, for one, appreciate that. I'm glad it's not in metric form, because in yeah, the United yeah, States it's, it's difficult. Important. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You have measurements that I can understand. Exactly. You don't need to uh, go and... uh, uh, I'm sure you saw some recipes where they said this ounce and half an ounce and uh, a a pinch. And, you know, everybody's pinch is different, you know? So I usually use the word uh, for your taste. That's a good choice, especially when you have a a sketch of a bare-bottomed lady on the front of your... Exactly. You don't want to put a <laughs> now, pinch in there. No. Steve, uh, the attire in the kitchen is optional. It depends on a party scene, scene you know? Uh, right. <laughs> Excellent. But another thing, why I, you haven't asked me why I named this the bare bottom. Yes. Uh, that is. A, tell me why you came up with that idea for the book. Um, well, you know, they, they got all kinds of uh, names for cookbook, which is uh, catchy, but... Uh, my the bare essentials I was concentrating on, and the bare bottom was because the bottom of the necessity you need to cook, you know, uh, like the bare, and this goes the bare bottom, 
So I, I put the two together. I said, uh-huh, that sounds good. But also, lovers, what do they do when they finish uh, uh, devouring each other? They go down in the kitchen and running the, uh, the fridge and the stove <laughs> because they're hungry. So do you think they're wearing clothes? No. They are usually wearing a shirt or a T-shirt, and they're cooking bare bottom. Hmm. Well, that's how I got the idea. That's how you got the idea. That gives me a unique perspective on food preparation, for sure. Mm-hmm. And moving along. Alona, in looking over your history and your biography, I noted that you are also an accomplished athlete. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, I, I did some fencing in Hungary, of course, uh, and then I came to... Uh, first came to Canada, and there was um, no way I could do the fencing, so I took up cross-country skiing. And uh, cross-country skiing was such a enjoyable sport. I became so good, I won a bronze medal in the uh, early 70s. And when I moved to Texas, there was no snow, so what you do? So I learned running, and uh, I do everything to the max. I, I'm not a quitter, so... I pushed it all the way to marathons, which I uh, became very good. Um, eventually, I ran 50 of those marathons and 100 miler. And um, I also did a mountain climbing, and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. So I um, always been an athlete, and my cookbook, I was also concentrating on have some healthy pasta dishes for some runners and the athletes because they're all fussy eaters and uh, they eat different than any other person. I was concentrating on uh, get it, help them out as well. And and what recipe is that? That's the cabbage, sauteed cabbage uh, with uh, butterfly pasta. It's uh, fresh cabbage sauteed in olive oil and um, uh, then put it on the uh, Butterfly pasta, bullseye pasta, actually, what's the name of it? It sounds delicious. And delicious. And um, I'm sure you will notice in my book, I only use uh, olive oil because it's very good for the body. And um, I'm sorry, I'm not a butter person. So <laughs> I guess I don't get a big plus on a buttered uh, side of my cookbook. Well, we could substitute if we needed to. Yeah, you could, you could. But uh, the health, some the, cream, yeah. cream stuff, yes. The healthier is, of course, uh, using olive oil. Yes. Well, I will look at that recipe because I am also an athlete. I do refrigerator sprints. I sprint from the couch to the refrigerator and back. So <laughs> that sounds like a great <laughs> recipe for me. I love that description, and I'm sure uh, there's lots of people do that, but. But then you have to do other exercises to make up for the uh, sprinting, you know? <laughs> I, that, that's absolutely true. The book title is The Bare Bottom International Party Chef. The bare essentials you need to have an awesome party. And our guest author is Alona Clark. Thank you, Alona, for joining us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And, and buy my book. And where's the best place to get a copy of your book? You can find the book, uh, Author House. Um, 800 number, you have it. And uh, they can also email me. Uh, I have a website called alonainternationalcaterershef.com. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? 
Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today I visit with author T. Jack Lewis, and I'm discussing a novel he's written titled The Tiger's Den, a novel for American audiences. And I welcome to the show T. Jack Lewis, also known as Tom. Tom, how are you today? Okay, great. Thanks for having me on your show. Tell me more about your background. You have a, a novel that looks as though it's set in the Orient because of the cover art, but my understanding is you spent time in Japan, but this is not about Japan or about that era. Am I understanding that correct? Right. Well, uh, it isn't exactly about Japan, but it's about Japanese people. And the way I looked at it when I was writing it was that it, it could be anyone. It could be about any kind of people that have ever lived. It just happens to be about, in this case, Japanese persons who, uh, as it's a World War II novel, it's a fiction, and it's about their deployment to Manchuria in 1939. So the characters in my novel are Japanese pilots who get sent into the spray against the Russians in 1939. You've written over 804 pages. Is this your first novel? Yes, yes it is. And... Um, as a matter of fact, I didn't intend it to be that long. It just turned into this epic because uh, as I was writing it, it just sort of took on a life of its own, and I just kept going until I felt like I reached the end, and it turned out to be over 800 pages. Amazing for a first effort. I guess someone would call it another War and Peace, which I understand is a pretty long book and an extensive read. How did you get motivated to write this book? What challenged you to put this together? Well... I always had a book in me, and I knew that, and I knew that someday I would write it. But the motivation actually came a few years ago, because I had received a notice from the Selective Service for my son to register for the draft. Now, my son is a dual citizenship person, half American, Japanese, but uh, he had moved back to Japan back in '06. So when I received this uh, notification, I had to notify the Selective Service that he wasn't here anymore and things like that. But it really made me think. And that was the thing that sort of pushed me to start writing. Because I thought, well, what if he'd gotten drafted? And so he's not uh, what I would call the type of person that would join the military, unlike me, <laughs> strange as it may seem. Uh, so it, it didn't fit his personality. But then again, I thought, you know, armies have conscripted and drafted people since the beginning of time, mostly against their will. So when I started thinking about that, I was motivated to put that into another context, and that was a World War II context. And I thought, what if he was in the same position in Japan in World War II? What if he had gotten drafted into their military? Mm. Because in, in my view, the, the Japanese used force to get what they wanted from the other countries, which is China, Manchuria, Korea. They invaded. And so I said, you know, maybe the country was doing the wrong thing. But within their ranks were all these good people, like my son. And that's where it all started. And the story just started to formulate in my mind. And when I started writing it down, I just couldn't stop. I just kept going. And that's what turned into the Tiger's Den. And you began living in Japan in 1984. How long did you live there? Well, I actually was sent there by the military. I was in the Marines. And they sent me there in 1984. And that was my first exposure to the Japanese culture. And... I found it to be not what I expected. I expected, well, I'm not really sure what I expected. Probably that the Japanese people were more like they're portrayed in American movies, which is cold, business-like, you know. Uh, yes. But that's not how they are at all. And when I found this out, I was impressed. And I ended up uh, coming back to the United States and then requesting uh, the Marine Corps to go back to Japan again. And over the next few years, I actually stayed in Japan uh, eight years out of the 20 that I served in the U.S. Marine Corps. That's in itself amazing. The culture is definitely different than those of the United States, a little more respectful of their elders and cultural things that are different. What did you find that was the most outstanding to you, and how did you incorporate it into the book? Well, there's like 
two questions there that I have to answer, and the first is, uh, they are a Buddhist culture, and this was important to me, because I was raised as a Roman Catholic, and I even attended Catholic school where I grew up in Chicago, but when I learned about the Buddhist philosophy, because Buddhism, a lot of people don't realize, it's not actually a religion, it's a philosophy, and I found a lot of parallels, and I had to incorporate this into my novel, and so... As my protagonist goes along, who I have to add also, <laughs> my protagonist is actually based on the character of my two sons, sort of a conglomeration. Uh, but his journey is not only about warfare, it's also about his journey to God and religion. And so what I've done is I've taken this Buddhist culture, a person from the culture, and exposed him to a Christian doctrine, and that's part of the book. So. I had to add that in as part of the uh, overall... The process of writing this book, how long did it take you to put this 804-page novel together? Well, I actually started writing it in my spare time, uh, but then I had retired from my current job, and I had more time to finish it. So over the time period, it was actually about a year and a half from the time I actually started to the time I actually finished it, yes. This book, who do you think it would appeal to? Is this something that's going to reach a broad audience, or is it a little more selective in who would find this appealing? Well, that's an interesting one, because I've noticed a trend, uh, even lately, in uh, well, in particular the movie industry, and they've been making more and more World War II movies, and I found that to be encouraging, because I think that this particular genre appeals to a lot of people. But the fact that I've placed it in the Orient and have included Oriental peoples, it's not just about the Japanese, it's also about the Manchurians. And uh, there's even a little introduction there to uh, Islam. Tell me about the story. Is there a scene in here that would stand out to the reader and be picked up by a movie company and turned into a movie of the week or an epic? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, But what I would say is that uh, there isn't just one scene that's, that's particularly gripping. There are many, um, and I don't want to, you know, give too much away, but there's, of course, the stress of aerial combat, and, of course, there's a interaction there between men and women, and then there's also a component there uh, where the occupying Japanese forces have to deal with an insurgency, and the men have to figure out sort of... Uh, you know, who, who, who it is they're after, and they have to find out, and it's an intelligence kind of thing. So it's an investigatory thing. So uh, there's many components here. You know, you got the aerial combat, you've got religion and interaction between men and women, love story, intelligence, investigations, sort of a whodunit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got a lot of things there that might appeal to a wide range of people. That's what I think. I, that's what I hope, anyway. Is there an underlying theme or underlying moral to this story that you are trying to convey? Maybe some key words would describe that. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, the the real underlying message is about the people. And it's not just American people. It's all people everywhere. Because their leaders have done them wrong in the past. And there's got to be a way for the people to maintain some kind of a vigil on their own leaders. Because in this case, in World War II, they had a revered emperor, and he could do whatever he wants. The people would never dare to question their revered leader. And, of course, they had a general military council that really put together all these uh, aggressive invasions of other countries, but no one was there with any checks and balances. And so that's the message. Don't let this happen again. Absolutely great advice. I'm sure writing 802 pages, I would have difficulty compiling maybe 14 or 15 pages. Was there anything else that was challenging about putting this story together? Oh, especially the um, the translation, because it isn't really a translation. It's written in English, and it's written for American audiences, but it's about another kind of people. And I noticed also in the past that movies from foreign countries that were about, let's say, the enemy. Uh, one that comes to mind is Das Boot. Very, very good movie. Did very well in the American box office. And it was from Germany, and it was about Germans. And there have been other movies. Uh, there was uh, Enemy at the Gates, which was about the Russians. Uh, several others, you know. And so that's why I thought that my genre would be uh, successful uh, to American audiences, because they really don't know 
just like I didn't when I first went to Japan in 1984. They really don't know about these people, but I wanted to put a human face on them, so that was my intention. I'm sure you succeeded. Is this book similar to others in the marketplace or different? How would you describe it? Oh, I would say it's completely unique. Uh, I'm not even aware, actually, of an American author that's written a World War II story about enemy soldiers. Um, there have been about other cultures, of course, but this particular style and genre, I don't think it's been done before. And if it has, I apologize. Uh, there's probably an author out there going, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> but uh, it's just that I'm not familiar with that. So I think that uh, I think it's pretty unique, especially in its uh, encompassing so many different storylines. Well, especially since you have lived in the culture and are adapting those impressions into the storyline, that that's certainly unique. Very much so, yes. And, of course, I drew on my experiences there, um, especially uh, my, my experiences uh, not only in the military, but in working with these foreign military persons. Uh, not only did I work with the Japanese, but I also worked with the Koreans and the uh, Philippine military in my time uh, overseas. The book title is... The Tiger's Den. It's a novel for American audiences written by T. Jack Lewis. Thank you, Tom, for joining us today. Well, I appreciate your having me. How do we get copies of your book? Well, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and also uh, on eBay. And, of course, you can visit the Author House website. It's available there also. And it's available in hardcover, softcover, and uh, as an ebook for download. Have you gotten motivated enough to pursue another book in your future? As a matter of fact, I'm writing the sequel to The Tiger's Den right now. And Fabulous. It's tentatively, yeah, tentatively titled St. Bart. So uh, I'm hoping to have that done and published by next summer. We hope to have the opportunity to visit with you about that when it comes out. Congratulations okay. and good luck with this book. Thank you very much. For Author Talk, this is... J. Douglas Barker.